0: Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to cross over a chapter division here. one eighteen, to chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish... Foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to nothing or to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ, Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God, Sometimes I feel like I just read that, but but, but what I mean is it's like I never saw that before, and yet I have, but it, it, it feels fresh, powerful, alive, things that we are told God's word will do. So we are continuing a train of thought. Number one, the overall series is partakers of Christ, not a mere contract relationship where we've Seen the term, sign on the dotted line, that's settled now. Put it in the vault and forget about it. No, partakers of Christ tells us we are in an active, interactive relationship. It's a living relationship with a living Lord, and things should be happening in our lives to let us know that we have these, the resources of Christ given to us and we're receiving them, making use of them, and he's directing us, and uh, it comes back full circle. We, we want to know we got that kind of relationship. Hebrews 3.1 mentioned uh, partakers of the heavenly calling. And Hebrews 3.14 talked about partakers of Christ. And then it listed some conditions. You know you're partakers of Christ if, which I'm not going to go backwards that far. Here's how far I am going to go back, though. Uh, The last lesson we had, we studied the scope of God's call. Okay, We're trying to look at at how, how big is this? Where's this coming from where is it going and so so we saw three basic things last week as to what is god to what is god calling us and god's calling uh, us to something and the first one was salvation deliverance from sin's penalty and power deliverance from the world the flesh and the devil and then sanctification transformation into the image of God's dear son doesn't happen all at once of course but that's what's going on as we partake of Christ we're partaking of a sanctifying work in our life we are uh, becoming not only holy people but a holy people in terms of of a relationship with one another as, as we partake of Christ, we're also learning how to partake of Christ through Christ being in every one of us, and we unite and, and work as a body with many members. Christ is the head. That's coming up later to define more. But a working force in the world for God's kingdom. We're not, we're not limited to any particular geographical location. We cannot take any political flag and say, there's the Christian nation. But we as Christians are part of a holy nation. A, a holy and royal priesthood, but that, that again, was last week. And then the, the third thing, when we look at the scope of God's call, is glorification. And this is where we can really keep our chins up. I mentioned earlier in our prayer time, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You always have something to look forward to. I don't mean wishful thinking. I mean hope as in a certain thing. Promises made. And that's why the, the aspect of this part within the series, is the gospel call, partaking of God's promises. Now, in this lesson today, we want to consider the essence of God's call. What is the nature of this call? How can we respond properly and know that we are partakers of this call? As Hebrews 3.1 says, partakers of the heavenly calling. So before we examine our scripture reading... I think we should consider five things that were highlighted in the days of the Reformation. Okay, now the Reformers themselves didn't sit down and form a committee and say, hey guys, let's have five things here. And I don't know what there is about the number five, but five has brought up more lists and points that we will not discuss them all today. But people began to summarize, what is it that made people leave the Catholic Church and form something else, uh, what is its doctrinal platform? What's its basis? What's the reason? What's the justification for this? And I can't explain all of that. I will tell you this, that this is something I have wanted to do for a long time and will hopefully do in the future, as God allows me, is to discuss the five solas. The five solas. Now, every once in a while, a Baptist church has to have a Latin service. So we're going to talk about Latin for a little bit. And if you want to be grammatically correct, you'd say the five solai, kind of like octopus and octopi, but we're not. They call it the five solas. You can look it up all over the place. People are teaching on it, and it's around. And you're going to notice there's always five, but they're not always in the same order. And some people pronounce a few things differently. And I invested lots of time to listen to really good scholars say the words. And I came up with the best I can give you. If you happen to look up something and they spelled something differently, don't, don't let that bend, bend you out of shape. We got the main root right here. These Latin phrases for us aren't to justify the Reformation. It's for us to capture the essence of God's call and our response This call. So we're, we're doing this on a very positive note here. We're not reacting to anybody else. That's later, once you understand these principles. This is just good gospel truth. And it understands how we are partakers of Christ. So we have these phrases sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, sola gratia or gratia faith uh, uh, grace alone sola fide faith alone solo christus christ alone and some say solus instead of solo but don't worry about it that's important remember the important things and then soli deo gloria to the glory of god alone sola scriptura the bible is our only authority and source for all that pertains to life and godliness now, that doesn't mean we don't have good teachings available um, in, in the forms of, of doctrine statements and, and uh, uh, creeds It's a, a sticky subject. Some people are creedal. What happens, unfortunately, is many people say, well, this is what the church teaches, so there. And they haven't worked it through really themselves. It's not their real strong personal conviction. We're trusting the church to have it right. So they, a creed, um, credo means we believe, and Baptists and some others, instead of saying creed, they say a statement of faith. But we know one thing, and, and Baptists especially do this, is they'll change stuff. As they read their Bibles, if they want to word something differently or add another thing, they just do. Because bottom line, the actual authority is not the church's statement or my draft of a doctrinal position. It is the Bible itself. And we honestly say that if we see in the Bible we've been wrong about something, we'll fix us. And, and uh, it takes honesty. I've, I've never been disrespected if I've told somebody I don't know, but I'll try to find out. But I don't quick come up with something, so I, it looks like I know everything and have authority, and you'll just believe me blindly. It's every Sunday. Please turn in your Bibles. Please go home and study your Bibles. See if these things are so. That's the Berean spirit, and that's what we want. That's what God wants. It's the only time I ever saw in the Bible where God called people noble Usually has a lot of other choice things to say about what people are like. But when they went home and searched the scriptures to see if these things were so, God said they were more noble than the people over in Thessalonica. But, but anyways, we have this chance to be Bereans. And so the scripture is the, is the baseline here. What does God say? Eventually we'll get to subjects like God doesn't even say anything about that or that or this or this. Why are people saying those things? Where did that come from? And then you study church history, historical theology, and you'll see how things happen. Councils met. Debates started. People split. If you don't care for that kind of stuff, you can live without it as long as you go to your primary source. Sola Scriptura. Sola Gratia. Some say solo Gratia. No problem. Salvation is entirely a work of God. His grace, not a joint effort of God and man. And we talked about that bridge. It only goes halfway across. Churches build those. People's theologies build those. Jesus goes all the way. And grace goes all the way. It's, It's grace alone, entirely a work of God, not a joint effort of God and man. Sola fide. I worked hard on that one. Fide. Okay? Salvation is by faith alone. It is by faith only. Now, I'm taking a statement attributed to Martin Luther. may not be an exact quote, because when he said it, it was in German anyways. But here's the idea. We are not saved by faith plus works. We are saved by faith that works. Okay? So that tells you it's the right kind of faith. Faith is enough if you got the right faith of which Jesus Christ is the author and finisher or completer. Okay? And that brings us to solo Christus. Christ alone. Salvation is only by and through Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself to us only through his son, Jesus Christ. Now the strength of of good teaching can also produce weaknesses in in the body of Christ. I can't stop it all. I can't entirely help it all. But each one of us is considered responsible to God for what we believe and what we do. And there are expressions like the priesthood of the believer. Okay? Soul liberty. These things tell us we have an obligation to interpret Scripture ourselves. Now, Of course we need teachers. We need spiritually gifted people. And and lots of scripture tells us about gifted teachers, pastor teachers, and and so forth, evangelists. They uh, have special gifts, but that doesn't mean we sit by idly and just let them say whatever. And because they're from this church, they're right. And and, and I, I believe there are believers in virtually every denomination. There's a few true cults I can't... Be as confident in it, except maybe they'll get out later when they finish seeing what's wrong. But, but uh, uh, whether we're talking about Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Assembly of God or Nazarene or Baptist or whatever else we want put on the table, the true believers are listening to Christ. Jesus did not say, my sheep are all Baptists. You know? He said, my sheep know my voice. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither, neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, now you're picturing two hands coming together like this, and you're not getting out. But follow the importance about the sheep. Other teachers try to get those sheep, but Jesus said earlier in John 10, the, uh, the sheep won't listen to a voice of a stranger. Now, for a while we do. Yeah, we get off on, on things. But eventually, when we know, as we read our Bibles, that Jesus is talking to us. And this is what, what my salvation looks like. I grew up in a denomination that had gone very liberal over the years and was killing my parents. It's just grieving them. But, but Dad was connected to it. He was a minister of music, and he, was, he had his little bucket, and he's on the Titanic, and he's just bailing away trying to do his part. You know, and that seemed to be what God called him to do, is shine that light in a dark place. But as a young man, I was fed up with church. Typical idealistic teenager. But I knew something had to be better than this. My parents were even telling me there's something better than this. Lord, where is it? Instead of just going around trying churches, I started reading my Bible every day. And by the grace of God, I started reading the New Testament first. And in essence, what I did is I I was exposed to Jesus himself and the apostles. They could guide me back to the Old Testament later, but they were giving me the picture put together. In the Old Testament, they had a bunch of puzzle pieces laying around in no box. Jesus came and says, watch this, and he put the picture together. It's me. Now, go replicate this to others. And so I saw that Jesus had a problem with religion, and that made me like him, okay? (laughs) I thought, hey, I'm not the only one here that thinks something's wrong. He, He had to deal with such things. He ultimately had to die because of such things. But from this emerged beauty from ashes, folks. And I realized I can follow the real Christ. Now my mission was to go find others who teach this way. I went out looking at churches, not just saying, which one do I like the best, or which one entertains me the most, which one has the the most fun, or the, you know, whatever itch I wanted scratched. And I said, what church truly confesses Christ, truly confesses the gospel? It so happened, I ended up in a Baptist church. And I didn't stay in that one. A little later on, I went to a different church, another Baptist church, but it isn't just about being a Baptist. It could be brethren. It could be Bible church. It could be lots of things. But by and by, if you are asking the Lord to guide you and you're listening to him through the word of God, he's going to get you in a place where you bear witness. Okay? And, and, and you, you want to look at a church not just for who's in the pulpit. You want to look at who's in the pew. You know, that, that, that we as a body of believers work as one. And there's something going on out there, not just up here. So these are are the kind of things we want to talk about is how is it only Christ? When Christ is using people. Okay? We're going to deal with that subject in a little bit. How Christ uses people and how you discern between that which is Christ in them and maybe just them. Okay? Uh, Since I'm thinking of it, I'll tell you a fun story. Uh, A guy had ordered a set of Blue Willow dishes from China years ago, and the attention to detail was tremendous. But he had one plate that got cracked, and he took that cracked plate, and he shipped it, you know, by ship, back to China with a note saying, please duplicate this. And months later, it came back, and it was perfectly duplicated, including the crack. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Now, Mr. Spurgeon would take this moment to say, "You, as you see Christ in me, and of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said this, as you see Christ in me, follow me. But the minute I deviate, don't follow me. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have our cracks. We all have our foibles. Um, and we need to discern Christ in us and emphasize the good part and try to help people with the bad part. In a a gracious way, we help each other through. Okay, I'm getting real preachy. I better move on here. Okay, salvation is only by and through Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself to us only through his son, Jesus Christ. And then, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. To God only is the glory, all honor, all praise, and thanks. All credit goes to God and as Jonah learned the hard way after going to Whale University in, in, in Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. Okay. Like I say, if God lets me someday, I'd love to do a whole big series on that. I just gave you a taste. But it fits what we're doing here as we look at the essence of the gospel call. What are we being called to? What are we supposed to do with this? How should we respond? So now we want to go back to our our scripture reading. I'm going to read verses 18 through 23. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, foolishness. Okay, so by the gospel, we, we know the power of God that saves people. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We are not able to be saved from our sins by the power of logic. We are not able to be saved from our sins by the demonstration of miracles or supernatural power. And we could add more to that list, but I'm, I'm sticking with Paul's basic thing here. You've got the Jews wanting signs and wonders, and you've got uh, uh, the logic of the pagans. They want to think things. And some of them want to see supernatural stuff too, but Jesus never tried to satisfy people's curiosity or their glut for the supernatural. He demonstrated things and then went right to Scripture to say, this is, what that, this is why I did that, so you know who I am so that you come to me and stay with me. The gospel seems to contradict man's natural wisdom and his dependence on his natural senses. I hope you're not stumbling over verse 25 when it talks about the foolishness of God. There is no foolishness of God. But if he were foolish, he'd still be smarter than the rest of the people in this world. Okay? And, and, uh, and so the, the weakness of God, God's never weak. He's not vulnerable. But if he was, he'd still whip in a fair fight anybody else. So that's sort of hyperbole. So having said that, we now come to the, the, the thing, but you see your calling, brethren. And this is what I'm trying to do in this message and in the message before and after this, is see our calling. It's one thing to say, well, we preach the doctrine of Jesus and people agree and they sign a, a thing and they maybe say a prayer, you know, and then we go into subjects like baptism and, and communion and, and church and all this stuff. And we're just sort of working down the road, just like we sign up for an insurance policy. And here's the benefits and so forth. No, this isn't just some business contract. It's a living, working relationship. And you need to understand that when the gospel is preached to you by a human being, or even if it's just written on the wall somewhere, it is the the Spirit of God who is actually making a unique and personal call to a person who believes. I can't make believers. I can't do anything, no matter how hard I try. The the call, the new birth is the work of God. It is not based on, on our qualities. And I could expand that by saying, you know, how smart we are, how much knowledge we have, our morals. I could, you know, I, I could think of all kinds of qualities. That doesn't make me able to lead people to Christ in and of itself. It's not based on status, You know how well the world likes me or looks up to me or thinks they need me, based on wealth or position. Uh, it's not based on accomplishments. Oh, so-and-so has done this and this and this, so they must know the right things to say here. I'll listen to what they say. No, it's not my accomplishments, and it's not my good intentions either. Just being sincere, I can jump up and down and hoot and holler. I can use breath mints and give you, give you a treat, and, and I can just do all kinds of stuff with all my good intentions. That is not the power of God unto salvation. As a matter of fact, God is confounding or confusing man's natural wisdom and expectations. So much of religion is doing what people expect. I heard a minister one time say, if if I only sold the gospel, I'd have lots of people. If I I only put a a list of horrendous things to do, I'd have more people. But I'm trying to give something away that's free. People are suspicious. People have it in contempt. Now, this gospel of grace, one reason I know the gospel is true is there's nobody else even close to imitating it. Everybody else has steps of this and accomplishments and rituals and deprivations and whatever else they come up with. And that's what natural man who wants to be religious does. We're trying to give something away that's entirely free. Now, it costs Christ everything, so it's not cheap. And when you're done, it's going to cost you everything, but it's going to be worth it. But be it known, get get the horse in front of the cart. It is the grace of God that initiates this. And so therefore, the natural wisdom and expectations of man are going to cause confusion. But when God's gospel gets through to people by the Spirit of God, the end result will be God's glory and man's humility. Oh, oh! I want to talk about that. <laughs> but I must go on to verses 30 and 31. Uh, no, no, I got a, I got a, I got ahead of myself. I haven't read twenty six through twenty nine. For you see, your calling, brethren, how that not many wise, not after the flesh, not many. Notice it doesn't say not any, it, but it, I'm grateful for that. But not many, yeah, not uh, many that are wise, not. Many that are mighty, not many that are noble or called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the, the things that are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised Hath God chosen. Yea, things that are uh, not to bring to nothing or not. Things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Okay, so when when you get to Luke three and it talks about who's the 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 emperor and who's the, the 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 governor in 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 the province and who's the high priest and all these big shots are named, it says the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. Here's a guy wearing camel hair clothing. And he's got locusts and wild honey on his breath, and all he's doing is saying, "You better repent. God's kingdom's coming. You better repent." And flocks of people were coming out there to hear him and to to. Repent and, and be baptized. And the Pharisees weren't sure if they were going to allow this, but they couldn't stop it. There's a man named John Bunyan. He repaired pots. Okay? So they call him a tinker. But the Holy Spirit got a hold of him, changed his life, and he started preaching the word, and he was having meetings in homes. And he didn't have a license from the, the church of the land. And because he wouldn't take the license, even when they offered it to him. He says, I already got a license in 1 Peter 4.10. I don't need yours. So they put him in prison for 12 years. But one of the great theologians of the day loved him, even though he couldn't stop what they were doing to him through the court system and the the bureaucrats of theology. But uh, he said, oh, I wish I had the power of men that the tinker had. You know, and I don't want to put people on too many high pillars here, but but one man that changed our country a lot in preaching was he was just a shoe salesman. You know, and it and it confuses people. He doesn't have a degree you know, and, and I don't I don't remember God saying that was in the list in First Timothy three or Titus one about the requirements of an elder that they have some degree of men. But they had to be taught of God. Well, you know, these are things powerful to think about. Now, um, yeah, I didn't read the references, but I, I talked about this. The end result will be God's glory and man's humility. Let's go to, to verses 30 and 31 now. But of him, that is, God put you in Christ. Of him are you in Christ. It's a work of God. Back to that grace alone. And concerning Jesus... It says, of God is made unto you. And he lists four things here. First of all, you are considered a a gift to Jesus. All that the Father giveth me, he said, shall come to me. So he looks at us as a gift. And by the grace of God, we went from being either wanderers in paganism or false religions, and all of a sudden now we belong to Jesus. God did that. And now why is it? That we would forsake all and follow him. Why is it that we might have to forsake even our father or our mother or our spouse or or our work or, or, or who knows what it could cost us, our very life? Why would we do this for him? Well, here's just four suggestions. God gave us our heads. Wisdom, it says. He has made unto us wisdom. He makes sense. Now I see things correctly. I have the mind of Christ. And he has made him unto us righteousness. I had nothing to bring to God except my sins and my phony righteousness. And he gave me real righteousness. So I tell people, I have a perfect relationship with God. And that's not because of what I'm doing. It's because of what he did and is doing. And then Jesus has made unto us sanctification. We're being set apart for the work of God, for the purposes of God. We're being more and more made in the image of God's dear son. And he wants to use us. But he had to buy us back from our problem. This is a story I can't help but tell. is a little boy made himself a little boat. Had a little sail, and he was so pleased with it. And he put it in a small creek to test it. And it's floating down, and he's running alongside, walking, watching his boat. The, the creek widened. The, the, the creek got steeper and faster, and he couldn't keep up. Stuff in the way. The boat got away. And he was so sad, he lost his boat. He just made it. One day, he's downtown, and there's a pawn store, and there in the window is his boat. Somebody found it. Somebody pawned it. And he went in and talked to the man about it, and it's going to cost let's just say for a little kid in an old story let's just say it's going to cost him a buck well he started raking and he started working and collecting pop bottles or whatever you can do he got the money and he came in that was still there and he plopped the money down and the man handed him his boat and the first thing he said is now you're twice mine Okay, that's what redemption means Jesus made us we got away because of the lies of the devil and the weakness of man And and sin came into the world, and we got away. But Jesus paid a price so we'd be twice his. And you better believe he's not letting us go now. (laughs) So he has made unto us redemption. Now, we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, like worldly, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Maybe I should clarify this. It isn't that we only talk about Jesus being crucified, but it is the centerpiece of everything we do talk about. Mr. Spurgeon said, start anywhere in the Bible and head for the cross. That's where it's got to go. And even after we have received Christ, we still want to go there. Remind ourselves: Why do we have the Lord's table? To remember what Jesus did on the cross. It's the only reason we're here. It's the only thing we have in common. That's what communion means, to have things in common. It's one of our key words in this whole series because the idea of sharing together. And so it is. Um, uh, Anything I know is not separate of that one main truth. And you know Paul could teach a whole lot more than just Jesus dying on the cross. But always came back to Jesus on the cross, or we wouldn't be here. Verse 3, chapter 2, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, real power. And a little farther in this book, chapter 4, I think verse 19, Paul will say the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. It's not a bunch of talk. It's power. Or I can insert the word life. Life from God. Okay, your face should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Hence the aggravation we face, the frustration, the the entanglements we run into because of denominationalism, because of, of rules and traditions of men, I don't care how many centuries old they are. If they're not found in this book, they're not old enough. And there's some traditions we can have that are appropriate. They're within the the confines of Scripture. But there's a lot of them that didn't come from here, and they they add trouble. They had trouble to the work of the gospel, they had trouble to the believer. We We get clogged up with stuff. And so it's our strength, it's our weakness. We have to interpret the scriptures individually and come together and try to agree, and work it out peacefully and graciously. Uh, But there will be friction. Remember that proverb: it says, "As iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend." But if you ever work with iron and sharpening things, there's sparks. You know, try not to have tinderbox around that the sparks could start something bad. You know, a fire. But there will be sparks. But we got to live. And work through it. We have to trust Christ with it. And that's oh boy, here I am again in Ephesians 4. One place it talks about the unity of the faith. But before that, it says we should strive to keep the peace that God has created. Now, I'm quoting terribly here. I I I hate it when I do this, but I, I have to I have to give you the right words. It says to walk worthy in Ephesians 4 1, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, which we'll deal with later, with all lowliness and meekness and long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, you keep that. You don't manufacture it, you keep it. God's created a, a peace for us by knowing the Lord together, and we must protect that. But later on, in verse um, 13, after he brings in the teachers and the other leaders in the church, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But the key word there for us is till. Some things can wait. Some things cannot wait. Absolute heresy has to be dealt with and keep the the gospel pure and the church pure and our minds pure and our hearts pure and our lives pure. But other things can wait. It takes the wisdom of God. It takes real discernment that the Lord gives us how to not disrupt the peace between believers unless there's absolutely a threat to the integrity of the gospel and the safety and well-being of the saints. Okay, that, that, that's not something just overnight, you got to all figure it out. But you, you see something here? It's we need to take care of a peace that God's given us that transcends understanding. Protect that. At the same time, work on our doctrine. Work on truth. Knowing that it's going to be a while before we get this all right. You know? And uh, like some have said jokingly, uh, oh, brother so-and-so has passed away and now he he knows I'm right. You know, we we have a way of joking like that. But the fact is, we're all going to know what's right one day and we're not going to be doing raspberries at each other saying, see, I told you. You know, we're just going to be so glad to be there. And so glad that Jesus will be the visible pastor that we need. Okay, i got to move along here. Now, one thing wasn't said in the solas, but it actually was implied in every single one of them, and that's the work of the Spirit of God. He wasn't named. There wasn't a sola spitura. You know, I, I didn't say that well. But uh, uh, he's implied in all of this. Um, God's Spirit is necessarily implied in all of them. The Spirit of God speaks through Scripture. He invisibly ministers grace. He creates faith and sustains it. He reveals Christ and he focuses attention to the glory of God. So go back and look at those solas and you'll see it again. The Holy Spirit is applying this to the believer. The Holy Spirit's making this real and powerful to the believer. He's sealing them into it so nothing else can contaminate this. And and it's a hard job. But to get us to even come to Christ, let alone come together as Christians and work and serve and not blow each other apart. This is the work of the spirit till the day of redemption. Now, I wouldn't be me if I didn't give you a list of things to think about and study and work on. And you don't know how badly I want to talk about every passage that I put here. But these are things I'm going to ask you to consider, meditate upon I, uh, yeah, the first one is going to be very apparent in Jeremiah 9 that that's what Paul had been reading when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, and, and I'll share with you here, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. And if you look at verse 24, at the things that the Lord delights in, and then you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're going to see Jesus has been made these very things to us. The wisdom, the sanctification, the righteousness, the redemption. It's It, it really... Collaborates. Jesus is all that, and that's why Jesus could say, "I always do those things that please my Father." This is why the Father would speak in that mysterious way and saying, "This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." You can't ever go wrong if you're truly following Jesus. I would, um, I would defer to Titus three three through seven. I was looking for one that might grab it all here and. I think all of them do. I I do hope that you might hang on to the list and and put it to use. Because the essence of the solas are in here. The essence of the call of God, the heavenly call, are in here. And uh, Titus 3, starting with verse 3, is a a lovely, lovely sampling. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts, And pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Yeah. The Father thought of everything. The Son of God accomplished everything. The Spirit of God is applying it to us one by one, sealing us, keeping us, preserving us, growing us. And when it's all done, remember soli deo gloria? You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you look... At verse 24 to 28. Then cometh the end. When he, Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God as the Father. Yes, even the Father. whom he shall have put, When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in awe. John saw a heavenly city, a heavenly Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God as it descended on the earth. For all the glorious descriptions I can give you of it, one thing stands out clearly in my mind. There was no temple there. No need of a temple because God himself will dwell with his people and his people with him. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Jesus came to do, to bring us to the Father. Right now, all authority is given to him. And we can trust him with that. But when he's done, God will be all in all. Somehow we're going to see God for all he is. Don't mean we'll understand it all yet, but man, oh man, what a wonderful treat is ahead of us. We're walking by faith, we're seeing dimly, but we can at the same time see with the mind of Christ and trust the next step and the next step and the next step. But when he comes, he's going to present us to the Father. And when that new city comes down on earth, we're going to be in new bodies, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And all of this wherein dwelleth righteousness, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Does that get you excited? All right. You've been called to this. And whatever monkey path you think you're walking through right now, it leads to gold streets. I don't know exactly why the, the road to the heavenly Jerusalem is so bumpy. But all I know is when we get there, it will be worth it all. Okay, something they're going to sing when we all get assembled. They're probably doing it right now. We're just waiting for us to join the choir. But we're going to sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain.